Hello, everyone, and welcome to Everyday Linux, episode 172, a date which will live in infamy. Recorded December 7th, 2014, and brought to you by Element OP Productions. Element opie.com welcome back ladies and gentlemen to the linux show that's not about linux but about life in the context of linux i am your host mark the sultan of the soapbox cockerel and joining me this week all by his little lonesome is seth the gooey kid anderson hello seth hey mark and thanks no one's called me little anything in quite a long time <laughs> what did i call you little what, what? you said by his little lonesome oh okay so Little is not a word you hear people use in conjunction with me, uh, unless sarcasm is involved. Six three two eighty five. Yeah, little doesn't come to mind, right? I wish I was two eighty five. <laughs> well, I was giving you some credit there. Thank you. <laughs> I uh, yeah, I'm not even going to go there <laughs> uh, today. But the we're recording this on Pearl Harbor Day. If you didn't get the reference, and uh, the uh, president of the United States at the time. Um, whose name just ran out of my head. Help me, Seth. Franklin Delano Roosevelt. Thank you. Wow, my name, the name generator in my brain just shut down. Roosevelt gave a speech in which he began September, uh, December seventh, nineteen forty-two. A date which will live in infamy. Infamy. He, was, said, he said forty-one. I'm sorry, sorry, forty-one. I know because if I didn't correct you, yes, the you. internet had already fired up. That's right. They're ready to go. So I, I preempted them. Um. That was uh, the date the uh, the Japanese um, bombed, or uh, bombed isn't really the right word, laid waste to Pearl Harbor because um, they didn't didn't have enough fuel to make a return trip. So they just kind of bombed and torpedoed and rammed and just went kamikaze on them. That's, that's where that phrase comes from. I'm going to go kamikaze on you. Um, bringing the U.S. into uh, the war that was already well in motion so there you go pearl harbor day for you history fans out there yep i i think probably most of the world looks at december 7th as the date the u.s finally got off their butt and decided to do something um europe and and uh uh, asia were probably waiting for the u.s to do something either afraid they would or afraid they wouldn't but pearl harbor took it out of our hands and we just said all right we have to respond to this yeah, it's one of those things, you know, it's, I, I don't know, you know, there, there's so much that has been talked about. Was it good that the U.S. entered the war? Was it bad? Should we have stayed out? Um, all that kind of stuff. But, you know, just, um, well, I don't know. We need to do like, like a history podcast or something to really get into that. But yeah, we'd have to be better day. at that to do a history yes. podcast though. <laughs> yes. One of well, my favorite, one of my favorite podcasts, Dan Carlin's Hardcore History Podcast. I know I've mentioned it before. He cranks out at most one show a month. It's often six weeks to eight weeks between them because he so thoroughly researches his shows and they're just, they're a history geek's dream. Um, and I, I would love to be able to do a show like that, but I know I'm not equipped. I don't have the the time or the energy or the or the the knowledge, the education to do what he does. Uh, he was a, a a military history major. That's that's his thing. His shows are just amazing. If you're not familiar with it and you're at all interested in history, go check out Dan Carlin's Hardcore History podcast. I bet I will be adding that to my feed. I actually um 
I purchased my next probably, I don't know, month or two reading material from elementopie.com slash Amazon. And one of the ones I got was uh, called Last Stand of the Tin Can Sailors. It's, uh, you know, tin cans. That's what most people call destroyers. And it was about the, the Taffy Three when they stood up to the Japanese flotilla at Leyte Gulf. And it's an interesting story. I love the story. And so I'm going to be reading that book. I mean, you know, I got a lot of my science fiction and other fantasy fiction books too, but I threw in a hardcore history book there. There you go. I, uh, audible.com had a, uh, um, Black Friday sale. They had hundreds of books at four ninety five, And so I, I went a little nuts. Uh, I already get two bucks a month for uh, two books a month from them for my uh, platinum subscription. I bought five more books for a whopping $25, but two of them are deep dive civil war books. One of them is 30 plus hours. It's like 31 hours. Um, and it's part one of three. So, I, wow. you know, once I get, once I get into this thing, I'm going to have to decide whether I want to invest the next 90 hours of my life in this. Um, but the, the way I understand it, it's historical fiction with all the, the reality. It's, it's fictionalized history, right? So it's, it's people that may not have existed doing things what real, that real people did. So it sounds uh, interesting because it gives you the narrative because sometimes what's missing in history is narrative. Um, yeah. And it becomes a list of things that happened. And if you can weave that into a narrative, it makes it much more interesting. I, I recently read a, a history fiction book called uh, Escape from uh, the Auschwitz Escape. Um, and it was entirely fictionalized, uh, but it was about an escape from Auschwitz in which many, many people did escape from Auschwitz. So uh, I like those kind of books, but they've got to be hard history, um, just like I like hard science uh, in my sci-fi. You know, fantasy, you know, th there's very little difference between a warp drive and riding a dragon uh, in, in reality. You know, if and, and if you don't have the hard science in there to at least make it interesting, it just becomes a f another form of fantasy book. Uh, right. And, and I lose interest in those. So let me see. You liked The Martian, didn't you? Very much so. Yes. Okay. I was. Yeah. I man, I don't know why. I just I might have to give Audible another try because. I love the concept, but I found I'm, you know, I was talking this over with a friend of mine, uh, here and they was like, well, you listened to a book you already knew. And I was like, well, yeah, cause I wanted, I wanted to give it a fair shake. Right. So maybe I will find some book I'm interested in, but haven't yet read and try audible that way. The, uh, the Jack Campbell Beyond the Frontier, uh, Lost Fleet series. I know you've read the Lost Fleet, but have you read the Beyond the Frontier series? I've read the first couple and, I think I petered out. I don't know if I'm going to continue them, um, but I've, I've read the first, I know I've read the first two um, and I don't remember if I've read the third one or not. I would have to read a little bit of it to yeah. remember. So th that would be a good example of, of a good recommendation in my opinion, because the, the production quality is very high. Um, really? The reader is, uh, he's not a reader. He's a performer. Uh, and it's, it's amazing to listen to this one guy do, six voices in a scene and even like from book one right so there's a character in book one i'm now in in book three and i hear the character speak and i know who it is without him having to be identified i love that about right readers who can do that cool that is good yeah and um again my name generation machine isn't working christian rummel that's his name he is he is i don't know about the best but one of the best 
readers I've ever heard on any Audible book. The book I'm reading right now, reading, listening to, yeah, somebody, I have a friend who gives me guff about using the word reading for audio books, and I had I thought today just of the perfect um, comeback to that. Do you, do you say a blind guy running his fingers across Braille isn't reading? He's not using his eyes to consume the books. Neither am I. I'm using a different sense. Anyway, the book I'm reading right now is called uh, What Einstein Told His Cook. It's the the physics and chemistry of cooking, um, two things I'm very much interested in, science and cooking. Um, and the material is dry. It's, you know, what happens when heat is applied to proteins or how you hydrolyze uh, proteins to break them down. Um, and the reader takes dry material and reads it in a dry way. And I, I would never recommend that book to anybody unless you're a true food science geek because it's not enjoyable as an as a performance the material is good you know because i find i find myself fascinated by it uh but right. the material isn't but uh you take um you know any of the uh the the uh jack campbell books that i've read so far i've read the first six and i just finished the second one of the beyond the frontier spider wolves need i say more they're the best characters ever written uh, yeah, <laughs> and uh, so then you get a good story mixed with a good reader, and it's just it's transcendent. You know, I might try Ender's Game because I haven't read any of them. The original, th- yeah, very excellent choice. The twenty fifth anniversary edition. It was my very first audiobook. That's where I got started with Audible, and a very good reader. Again, uh, actually, there's like four different readers, um, and they. Um, yeah, very good choice. Again, you as you noticed with The Martian, you have to just pretend the music isn't there in an Audible book. Right. Uh, I wish it wasn't there because they, they, they hire some guy with a little eight-key Casio keyboard to do transition music in and out of chapters, and it's terrible. But uh, other than that, it's really good. So, yeah, that's a good place to start. I, I might have to do that um, because, you know, like I say, I've, I've wanted to do, and I, I didn't see the movie, but it looks like, that's the kind of stuff I like to read. So I might give that one a try and then maybe do the whole series or something. And I, dear Lord, that's just what I need. And I'm starting to get out of debt. And let me just one more thing to subscribe my life away to. The Ender's Game uh, movie was a fine movie, but it in no way represented the book. And it's not their fault. The problem is 85% of the book takes place inside Ender's head. It's his mental dialogue. Right. Um, and you just can't do that on the movies. I mean, you nobody wants to watch a two-hour movie with voiceover. Uh, I'm looking at you, um, Blade Runner. <laughs> nobody wants that. Right. It's much the same way World War Z. It was a fine movie, but that was a horrible name because it was nothing like yeah. the book. Oh, especially having read the book after watching the movie. It was great because I knew nothing about the book because the movie (laughs) was the movie. I mean, there were some quotes from the book that were said in the movie totally out of context. But, you know, it was like, hey, they said that in the movie. I guess that's why they called it this. They enjoyed that book, too. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Yes. um, Zombie movie by people who liked World War Z should have been what it was called. (laughs) All right, just a quick programming note. We will not have a show next week. Um, 
The record date on that is December 14th. The release date, December 17th. Uh, December 10th is my 20-year anniversary with my blushing bride. Uh, so we will be uh, out that weekend celebrating. Um, and the way that 40-somethings with kids celebrate is you sleep late in a fancy hotel room. So, so that's how we will be celebrating. But I, I won't be here to do a show that night. So we're just going to skip the 17th. Don't panic when that uh, doesn't come out in your feed. Uh, we will be back Christmas Eve, the 24th. We will have a show that week. Um, and then I think on December 31st, we're going to try to do the greatest tech mistakes in history show. I think that'll be a fun one. Ah, start preparing for that one. All right. Yeah. Um, could you include new Coke in that? It wasn't really a tech mistake, but it was a huge business mistake. Oh, I, I don't know. We'll have to, you know, maybe we'll like an, I don't know. Why not? <laughs> and also, I just wanted to let you know that I donated in your name this week to the Wikipedia, Wikimedia Foundation. Uh, I went to Wikipedia to look up something, as I do dozens of times a day, uh, and the little banner came up saying they were doing their pledge drive. So I uh, donated 10% of what I received, plus some, some of my own money in, and uh, you helped support Wikipedia. And I, there's nobody in this audience that can tell me they don't use Wikipedia. Even if you don't use it directly, when you do Google searches, often much of the content on the search page, the results page, is from Wikipedia. So it's too good a resource not to support. Uh, so we did. Thank you for helping me support Wikimedia. Woohoo! Go money. <laughs> Apparently, we love that sort of thing. <laughs> and uh, you said that we need to hurry up and finish so you can watch the librarians. What is that? Tell me about it. Um, well, it, it, there have, there were like these three movies made uh, by TNT starring Noah Wadley. He was, you know, oh, yeah. the, okay. The, I remember yeah. that. So uh, they made it into a series now where, like, he's kind of, I guess, moved up and there's a new crop of them. So it's that same type of. Um, you know, it's that they take historical artifacts, but instead of it just being some cool thing, there's some magical power and it's good versus evil. And the library is like kind of like the Knights Templar throughout history fighting evil. And it just looks like uh, it's something I'm going to enjoy. So, so this it's called is the librarians. This is Warehouse 19 for history buffs or Warehouse 13. What, what it's Warehouse 13 done. It done by tnt instead of sci-fi basically <laughs> okay so i mean that's it's the exact same premise but more nerdy less geeky okay so i mean that would be you know even though that there's a lot of overlapping that would be a great crossover actually <laughs> so asylum get on that we need a, a, libra- a sci-fi uh tnt asylum production warehouse librarians or something I watched two episodes of Warehouse 13, and that was enough for me to know it was not my kind of show. The first season I enjoyed, but, you know, and it happens on all the shows. Eventually, the characters become caricatures of who they really were initially. And then it's like, we've got to add these other people. And so this happened with Burn Notice. I loved the first couple of seasons of Burn Notice. And then they just started throwing more characters in there. And then you don't get anything because every character gets their FaceTime and you know, this person says that and that person says that and that's the whole show. And, uh, the things that made the show great kind of get run out of the way so the characters can do their shtick. 
And uh, yeah, my my wife was a big fan of the series ER for what do we run like fourteen years or something. I was a fan for the first couple of years, and I watched it off and on with her for the rest of the series. She watched it every week Thursday night, uh, yeah. must see TV um, for for years. Uh, but my my thinking was, how much can happen to one human, right? So they took an entire seventy year lifespan of calamity and clammed, crammed it into you know a five year story arc. For one person, and it's just you know, I just I lost interest in that. And I, same thing with these sort of X Files. At some point, there, there's so much that has happened, you just can't you can't take it anymore. I think one of the few shows that broke out of that that ran a long time was Star Trek: The Next Generation. They just got stronger as the series went on. Their their last two or three seasons, the writing was better. Um, you know, just increasingly as they began, uh, I remember specifically commenting on this at the time when it was in first run that they began focusing on uh, single character development. This is the wharf episode. And, you know, this is the Picard, ep- the, the, the one where they were sweeping the ship with the barium, whatever, uh, radiation. And he was trapped in there and it was like 80% of the dialogue was Picard. Um, and he was fighting. There were only like four characters in the whole show. There was the three terrorist right. type people in Picard, and it was so well written because it was all about him. And then you know, and if if you run out of of stuff, you just have him pick up a magic flute in another world and live another lifetime. And that was a great episode. <laughs> you know, it really was. Well, and you know, the one good thing it started out with a large enough cast, exactly that you know. That's one of the reasons the first series, the first season was kind of weak because it takes that when you have that many people, it takes that long before you know enough about all of them. But with such a huge cast, you can slowly develop each of them and you're not running out of stuff and you're not throwing in the new guy to try to breathe life into it. You're just growing what's there. So, yeah, a lot like, you know, to me, the Big Bang Theory started out pretty cool, but then they kept adding people wow. and all of a sudden, you know, like there's no way somebody as smart as Sheldon can be that socially inept for that long and yeah. still be clueless. I and, still enjoy it, but yeah, I enjoy it less than I used to. They become caricatures. Yeah, that's I, it, it's enjoyable, but I find the older ones in syndication are more enjoyable than the new ones. Yeah, I mean once so you know, once you take Wallowitz, the the chronically bad with women character and marry him, you you to a you super lose, hot chick, right? You lose a lot of the fodder for the show. Yep. Oh wow that that went someplace I wasn't expecting. Um, but let's because Seth is so enamored with numbers, let's talk about Black Friday in the U.S. According to this article on Yahoo.com, half the population of our country went shopping that day. A, um, a ridiculous 140 million Americans um, spent about $22 billion. That's with a B. So uh, it was um, the amount they spent on Thanksgiving Day, 1.3. Uh, they spent 2.3 on Thanksgiving dinner, and that's with billions. Um, number of turkeys eaten, 51 million. Uh, peak Cyber Monday shoppers per second. 8,365. Um, peak Thanksgiving photos shared on Instagram, 226. Average calorie count of the turkey dinner, 4,500. Um, and then one of the things, let's see, where was it at here? When it was at the, uh, 
So while you're yeah. looking at that, I will point out that the the current estimates of the population of the U.S. is about 315 to 317 million people, 140 million. So 47 or 8 percent of the country left their homes and went to Walmart. Yes, it was ridiculous. Um, average spent online in Cyber Monday per second, $31,242. Per second! Um, at- Per second, average increase in the U.S. national debt per second, $31,558. So every third, every one second, $30,000 was being added to people's credit cards and the national. So I want, so really it's one of the things it's the national debt and then the uh, people's individual debt. So yeah, Cyber Monday was a bad day for debt in America. I'm sure one in um, five people shopped on a smartphone or a tablet. I did. I did my shopping using the, uh, uh, Amazon app on my phone. Cool. So you didn't get your percentage cut back there? Uh, you know, I, I, I generally don't do that for my own purchases. It just seems somehow wrong to me. Oh, well, but yeah, as sales generated from social media referrals, $150 million. Wow. So yeah. And then, um, there's the, uh, injuries per store per location, uh, almost. <laughs> Two-thirds were at Walmart. Walmart's Black Friday sale lasted eight days. <laughs> eight days of yeah. Black Friday. In, I, saw a, I saw a post, a picture on Facebook. It was 66% like, you know, of the injuries for Wal- of, of Black Friday occurred at Walmart. Yes. People who've died in Black Friday fracases since 2008 are seven. Yeah. But uh, I saw this uh, picture. It was like, you know, I demand they televise Black Friday the same way they do the Hunger Games. <laughs> That's awesome. That would be a good pay-per-view, you know, <laughs> set up like a store and like deals. You know, there's like five televisions oh, for five bucks each. Get on it, Three. Fox. This is gold <laughs> waiting to happen. This is the next great reality TV show. You know, like, and then there's like three iPads for five bucks each. And then you have these design and there's just a few of them. And then you let a hundred people loose in the store yeah. with cameras mounted on the ceilings. Cause you wouldn't want any camera tech in there. Uh, they would get killed, but you know, you could have drones flying around covering people and they could like do events in the parking lots for head starts. Um, I'm telling you. Yeah. And then they could use this that week money on savings dome. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. And you could have weapons like non-lethal uh, nets and things like that stashed around the store, uh, the the store to uh, to take out your competitors. That would be oh, and make it you have to earn your money doing stupid things. Oh, so yeah. you only have so much when you get to the store. Right, so you eat way, a live you know. scorpion and you get five dollars for everyone you eat. Something like that. Right. So Something you combine like fear factor and survivor and the worst that capitalism brings out in people. This is the best show ever. You you just made somebody some corporation billions of dollars on this. Well, no, and I tell you, the 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 proceeds could go to uh, pay off the national <laughs> debt. I think one or two years we'd have that thing knocked out. You know, I'm sorry, folks. I, I feel the need to apologize for going so far afield, but. Our fans know. If you're first time listening to the show, this is what we do on this show. It occurred to me 15 years ago that one thing that that the the American government could do to uh, help with the national debt is get in the movie making business. 
So, you know, the Hunger Games grossed $100, billion, $100 million on the opening weekend. So you go to all these A-list actors and writers and cinematographers and all these people and give them a copious income tax cut for one year or for the amount of time that they're working on a, on a show. So to give them incentive to do more or to do bigger shows. So imagine the U.S. government um, funding, producing, and all that gladiator. It's still, it's still Russell Crowe, uh, acting. It's still Ridley Scott, uh, directing. You still got the writers, but they're doing it instead of for money. They're doing it for their own personal income tax rebates. That show has made hundreds of millions of dollars in, in syndication, DVD sales like that. All that money could go straight to debt relief. I think it's a brilliant idea. Somebody should do it. That's why it'll never happen. Exactly. And it's not, it's not welfare. It's not, it's not coercing people. It's giving them incentive to do things that they want to do. And it'll, it'll give us incentive. We want to go see the movie, right? Nobody wants most of the things the government does. This would be something that people want, you know, I'm just, and, and they're the government, right? They could, they have the ultimate ability to strong arm, uh, movie theaters. You think Hollywood does it now. The government could be, you know, you want your taxes audited for the last 15 years, you're going to show this movie on the IMAX screen. I'm not saying that's the right thing to do. I'm just saying it's something they could do. Yep. (laughs) Okay. Enough about that. Uh, Black Friday has become a thing. And actually, this is a really good thing for um, indicators of the American economy. If uh, if 47% of the population is shopping, um then that means that they have money to spend. So these are good things. Um, not necessarily happening in good ways, but it's an indication of good things. Right. All right, moving on to the uh, listener feedback. Gorma, Gordon excuse me, has one comment on Linux gaming. He says, hi, guys. On the Linux gaming front, Chris was close on what needs to happen. The game developers need to get away from the evils of DirectX and code to OpenGL. Then people will be able to break free of Microsoft World for gaming. Until that happens, I'm afraid Microsoft will always be the leader. And that's about all I got to say about that, Gordon. So, Gordon. Okay, Gordon. Let me uh, start off, Mark. Okay. Gordon. That's your problem. That's all you have to say about that. Have you not been listening to our podcast long enough? That's just your opening intro. You need at least five <laughs> or ten minutes of filler. So, but no, good comments, Gordon. Uh, I'm sorry. I just wanted to bring that bit up. Go ahead, Mark. Um, the, you're right about that's what will break the Microsoft stronghold, but think about it from a game developer standpoint. Um, I can either write to OpenGL, which is an add-on that's available for other people, but is not guaranteed to be on any workstation, even your Linux workstations. Um, sure, you could bundle it with your software if you wanted to, but considering most things are delivered now via download, you've just maybe doubled the size of your download. Or I can write to DirectX, which is already on 80% of the computers in the world. Which are you going to choose? Uh, the, the, there's no reason for people to write to OpenGL. It's just it's just not. And it's not going to happen until until it becomes significantly better than DirectX. That's what it'll take. So what we need is to hire the malware writers to go in and write scripts that <laughs> download and install OpenGL on all computers in the world. And then there would be a huge market for it. So Yeah, that's that's weird. Okay. And sorry. I don't know how to pronounce this. M-I-Q-U-E. I'm going with Mike. 
Um, if I'm wrong, let me know. I'm probably wrong. Uh, he asks about Ubuntu. He says, hi, I just started listening to your podcast, Everyday Linux, starting with the first episode. I'm so sad. I'm so sorry, sorry you did that. Um, I did listen to your two most recent ones as well. Well, God, I feel a little better about that. And I realize the podcast is about life in the context of Linux, but I'm also considering using Linux myself as an everyday platform. So he's apologizing for bringing Linux to the Linux show. Um, that's great. You can tell he has listened to our <laughs> show. <laughs> he said, I'd just like some advice. How would you set it up? I'm looking for something to give me some Windows functionality, but I also like the idea of making things more automated, streamlined, and more productive in general. I'm a high school junior, and I think I'll be taking uh, a PC that is a few years old and putting Ubuntu on there. Any advice is helpful. I really like the podcast and the sorts of things that you all talk about. It's sometimes I, uh, I listen to it in my free time. It's great. Thanks for the ideas, and my apologies for making you read such a long message. It'll be worth it. Trust me. Yeah, this isn't long. You you haven't been around long enough to know what long really is. Uh, P.S. After listening to your 170th podcast, I made a conscious effort to do as much math in my head as I can. I'm in Woo-hoo! physics and pre-calculus. Thank you. Yeah, that's important. People should know how to do math. So Ubuntu tricks for making it more Windows-like. I can only think of two. Um, one off the top of my head is to resolve net BIOS names, which Ubuntu doesn't do. Other uh, Linux distros do out of the box. Uh, Ubuntu doesn't. So you drop it in a Windows network, um, and you're going to have to search by IP address instead of the Windows net BIOS name. Um, you go to, uh, etc slash nsswitch.conf. Um, and you add wins, W-I-N-S, to the list of things. So it's going to be DNS, uh, uh, ETC. There's going to be a list there. Uh, you want to add W-I-N-S, wins, to the end of it. So that'll tell it to go out and look for uh, Windows Internet Name Service. But before you, before that'll work, you have to app get install libnss-winbind. So that's the, the package that, makes ubuntu able to read the windows internet name service that will give you a long way that then you'll be able to just type in the search box you know find me gandalf the server and it'll go go find it uh without that you'd have to do ip addresses and secondly you need wine and probably a vm with windows on it to really get stuff like you know itunes is the example i was going back to there's simply no way to, to do itunes um on linux through wine there's it just as far as i know not possible so you gotta have to have a windows vm now you maybe you don't care about itunes but there are other things like it that's just the example i pick there are software that simply will never work outside of windows so you got to have a windows vm running on something like um a vmware or um virtual box those are my two bits of advice otherwise stock ubuntu is great go with it uh, well, one thing you've mentioned in the past, and I don't know if he's caught up on all the episodes yet, but installing your home directory on a different partition. Yes. So, uh, you know, that would maybe you just want to cover that again, because, you know, if you're a typical Linux person, you're going to be blowing away your Linux install very, fairly regularly. And um, that could be something that saves you some guff. Yeah, so when you do the initial partitioning, if you're setting up uh, Ubuntu, don't let it partition your disk. Uh, on its own. Tell it what you want to do. Um, you want to slash a root directory that's no more than 20 gigs. You just don't need much. Um, that's where your programs go. Uh, you want to, you know, I, I'm not a big swap guy, but I'm going to go with the recommendation. You want swap equal to the amount of RAM in the machine. 
at this point, you're talking a few gigs on probably a terabyte drive. Then you want a little bit to be um, the uh, the boot section, a hundred megs or less. It needs it needs not much at all, and then all the rest of it, make it slash home. Home is in the Windows world. It's uh, it's where your uh, excuse me in the Linux world. It's where your stuff is. Slash is the root directory is where all the programs live. Uh, home is where your stuff is, user space. That's your world. So you want at least half your drive, maybe more, to be the slash home directory. Uh, and the benefit of that is if you if you hose Ubuntu, you you don't reformat. You just pop in a new one, reinstall, tell it don't mess with my partitions. It'll wipe out your existing Ubuntu uh, setup without wiping out your data. And if you want to switch from Ubuntu to to you know OpenBox or you know wh- whatever, pick your distribution here. Um, you can do that, and all your home stuff will still be there. And since you're in a, a an open source world, almost everything works across. So Firefox in any distribution is going to look in the same directory in your home, and so your your plugins and your settings and your bookmarks are always there. So that's that's a big important thing you want to do, and of course back up heavily. And one other thing I want to add, if you're going to be interfacing in a Windows environment a lot and maybe accessing your machine remotely, Good point. set up an additional partition and format it in TFS for storing your actual data files, like, you know, movies, documents, music, things that you want to listen to, because Linux can read in TFS and Microsoft can read in TFS, but Microsoft has trouble reading the native Linux partition. So, right. you know, and again, you got a hard drive, it's huge, you know, and in addition to your home directory, make a data directory that you just, and that's where you put your actual files, not, not your program information, but the Word document that you created or LibreOffice document that you created or your YouTube downloader goes there or yeah, whatever idea. your CDs that you rip, you rip to that directory. So Linux can read them, but also if you're on a network, a Windows machine can read them as well. Or if you're dual booting, that way you yeah. can see it there as well. Yeah, so I, I would say that's that's only important if you're dual booting or running a local Windows OS. If you're over the network, it's going to be using something like Samba that will look into it, and it'll do the translation. So the network thing, I don't think that's a, a consideration at all. Uh, the okay. the the sharing app will take care of all of that. But yes, if you're running, if you're dual booting, you, that's critical. You need to do that. Um, and also, if you want to be able to pop that drive out and put it in a Windows machine and have access to stuff, uh, NTFS is the way to go. Good good bit of advice. And our last little bit is just something fun from Paul, who comments on the concept of speed limits. says, hi, all. Regarding the discussion of rush hour speed limits and safety in episode number 169, back when Martin Marietta was a separate entity before Lockheed Martin, my father worked at the Waterton plant south of Denver. Uh, it is several miles outside of town and is reached via a limited access four-lane divided highway that ended at a security checkpoint. In other words, the highway existed solely to get to that plant. The speed limit was 70 miles per hour, but during rush hour, 90 was the norm. Apparently, there was one guy who drove at 70. My dad said the state patrol pulled him over and told him to get with the program or get off the road. Alternatively, another guy in a Jaguar XKE was late for work one morning and ripped along at 120 plus and whizzed through the security checkpoint, hoping that the state patrol on his tail would be stopped. No, didn't even slow down. Humongous citation in that case. As usual, thanks for what you do. So, yeah, we were talking about uh, when laws are fluid. 
And speed limit is a good example of that. Sometimes following the law is not the right thing to do, but you have to know how much you can break it by. So 90 is good, 120, not so much. And sometimes the only way you find out is you get a ticket. Yeah, sometimes. My, I remember this story. I don't know why I remember this, but I remember my band director in high school. He was talking about, he was from West Texas, and he was talking about he was like either going or coming from home, and he was going like 90, and this is when the speed limit was still 55, and this highway patrol guy came by, and he thought, great, you bust me, but the highway patrol pulled up beside him and was edging him off faster because <laughs> a storm front was rolling in and he said he looked across and saw lightning strike a tree by the road and it shatter and he had no problem d- uh, developing a lead foot then <laughs> so so sometimes you know you do have to and it was a highway patrol saying you need to speed yeah. more go <laughs> and he's like yes officer and like i say I, re- I remember that story i don't it's just weird i was out driving through west texas if you've never been to west texas all you can see is sky it's just road in every just just flat in every direction. So um, there really is no such thing as a hill. Uh, there's there's visibility for as far as your eye can see, literally. Uh, when the when the the dust particles in the air obscure your vision, that's how far the the visibility is. So I was out. It was three o'clock in the morning on a dead flat road. I was fighting fatigue. I was driving hundred plus, just just flying, and had been going for hours and hadn't seen another car and so one car was lights were up ahead of me of course at the speed i was moving i was easily doubling his uh uh speed and so i very quickly got up to him and zipped on around him just in time to see that it was a highway patrol officer and i thought oh i'm dead i passed by he waved at me and just kept going he was like i know it's three o'clock in the morning in in west texas go ahead have fun (laughs) so um you just never know uh right moving right on to our news of the week um and this is more of a a tech uh rumor than a tech fact uh mozilla may uh decide to uh work on firefox for the android and ipad well actually they've uh Oh, they've it's, said it's they, been confirmed. Okay. Yes. They weren't, they weren't going to do it for the iPad because, you know, Apple is living large and in charge of their stuff and you have to use their Java scripting engine, all that kind of stuff. So you're really not using Firefox. And like the way Opera does it is Opera, um, renders stuff on their server and then sends that result to you. So that's how Opera on iOS works. But Firefox is like, um, Lots of people use the iOS and we want to be where the people are. So we are working, uh, on bringing Firefox to iOS no matter what. Um, so they'll probably end up, it'll be a streaming service is what it'll end up being. Yeah. You know, I, I, yeah, I would assume something like that. Yeah. Cause they don't allow any other web engine on iOS. That's their rule. Um, it's, it's WebKit and it's Safari WebKit and that's it. Uh, so the quote from uh, Lucas Black uh, is, we need to be where user are, users are, so we're going to get Firefox on iOS. There you go. I don't think it'll mean much because they'll be very limited in what they can do since they won't have access to the to the hardware. Right. But I wonder how they're going to do like your Firefox plugins. Are they are they going to work over, you know, that, I just wonder yeah, because, I, I, you know, I like Firefox and I have some plugins that whenever I, um, whenever I install Firefox, I go and load those plugins up and 
you know, put in my passwords and I'm good to go. So I'd be curious as to see how it works. Um, I don't do a lot of surfing on my smartphone because it's simply the screen is too small. Um, I use it like if I want to see what's playing at the theater, I have a few pages cached and I just bring up, bring up that page and let it refresh and see what's there. But, uh, yeah, I don't really do a lot of web, heavy web usage on it. Yeah. It's, it's hard to read an article on a five inch screen. It just, especially as I'm getting older and developing presbyopia, it's even more difficult. Big word for the day, presbyopia. Yeah. Middle age site is a, is what it's called. Um, Geeks can be romantic in very geeky ways. Yeah, this is a, there's really no big news value to this story, but this guy, he's from Japan, apparently, and he traveled throughout his whole country tracking his path via GPS. And it is marry me. And then on the Northern Island, there's a, a red heart with an arrow through it. So I just thought that was kind of a neat story, you know, um, pretty cool. Uh, she did say yes, according to the uh, article, but, uh, what was it? Two years, I think that, uh, that this thing took, it started in 2008. Um, and he, he sort of vlogged about it, video blogged and, and had pictures and he put it all together in like a seven minute slideshow. And somewhere in that slideshow was the GPS track. That spelled out "Marry Me." Looked like it was written by a third grader in, in crayon, but you can forgive the guy because he's driving uh, with a GPS app to do that. Right. So I just I thought it was a. I mean, you know, it, unfortunately, kind of raises the bar up there for all of us single people. <laughs> yeah. It's like, hey, her husband spelled out "Marry Me" across the country in he GPS. Spent two years proposing, <laughs> and you you, even- you you think getting down on your knee yeah. is sacrifice? But you're going to slip it into my champagne glass while I'm not paying attention. How pedestrian. Yeah. So, um, yeah. If you're a, uh, a tinfoil hatter, tinfoil shroud at this point, uh, there's a new ATM skimmer, uh, that can, uh, be almost impossible to find. Yes. Um, and while it's kind of technically a skimmer, but what they do is they drill a little hole and, and again, I don't understand how the security camera doesn't catch this. And I wonder how true this is, but they drill a hole and then just insert something into it that they tap into the wires on the innards of the ATM machine. And then they put like a decal or something. So you don't recognize the hole. And then they still need the camera to get your pin pad. But you know, like one of the things, whenever I go and I slide my credit card in something, I always kind of just jiggle the the uh, reader to make sure it doesn't pop off. And you know, that's just, like I said, a little tinfoil visor <laughs> trick I learned there. But um anyway, so it was just kind of a, I was like, you know, kudos to their ingenuity, but at the same time, scary. And you know, this isn't going to make me never use an ATM. Well, I mean, I don't use ATMs, but I use credit card machines. So uh, it won't make me stop using credit card yeah. machines. So on a on a slightly related note, just last weekend I had the first opportunity to use a tap and pay. Uh my phone the Nexus 5 has had that for uh, I've had it for a year now and I've had that ability. I've never used it. But with Apple Pay making noise, people are updating their devices with the with the tap things. And so I was at a uh, a kiosk in the mall 
uh, purchasing tickets so my kids can ride a pink pig. Uh, it's a Georgia thing. We're, we had to do it. It's part of our um, residency requirements. Um, and I saw the little, you know, pad there with the sort of wire uh, radio wave uh, symbol on it. So I thought, well, let me just try this. And so I tapped my phone to it. It vibrated and said, do you want to spend, you know, whatever, $27 here? I tapped yes, and it was done. So uh, if that becomes the norm, awesome. Uh, it's more secure than using the credit card. It's harder to hack because your phone is encrypted and has your own, you know, identification code. So uh, I, I'm uh, really excited about that becoming uh, every day. Again, it's existed for a long time, but until Apple decided to do it, merchants largely didn't care. Right. I just, the thing I don't like about the whole thing is like, I use a credit card. And so I understand that the Walmart, they don't get the dollar that I paid. They get, you know, cause the credit card company takes their slice off the Right. Off the top. So if I put my credit card information in there, that's another slice. So that means in order for the store to make as much money, the prices are going to go up. So I know prices go up anyway, but you know, it, you're, you've put another hand into the jar making money off my transaction. So therefore the jar has to become bigger to hold all those hands going into it. So this is true, but what, what I've read from from uh, people who know these sort of things is because it's more secure, because it's not easily copyable by using a MagStripe reader, and because you have to maintain physical access, you're not giving your card to a waiter who who walks off. There's the the card present or card not present button um, that apparently changes the rates. So it's actually going to save people money because it's a considered a more secure transaction. So actually it may work in the favor of the merchant who would then not have to raise the rates because the the card vendor the you know visa or mastercard whatever is more certain that this is actually being done by the right person so lower fraud means lower cost of of uh paying for fraud so the idea is that it will actually make things if not cheaper the it will prevent costs from having to go up I, I would like to see it preventing costs from going up, but then again, you know, you don't, companies like that don't tend to give back right. when they see the prices fall. So, um, right. Anyway. Which is to say it, it might head off increases, but yeah, it's not going to cost anything to be cheaper. Right. Um, and while we're talking about things that may or may not be secure, um, according to Ars Technica, uh, secure sites are often more vulnerable to hacking than insecure sites. Well, you know, there's the, um, there's kind of like the web of trust thing. Like I know McAfee has one and Semantic has one too. There's a little symbol down there. This site certified to be malware free. Well, there's so much malware out there and so limited, uh, vulnerable, so limited amount of scanning that goes on. They've done a lot of researches showing that those sites are still just as vulnerable. And the only thing is they have, um, a little web badge. But, you know, it's one of those things that you're paying for the feeling of security, but you might not actually be secure. Yeah. And I don't disagree with that. It's paying for the badge doesn't actually help much. Right. It's sort of like having antivirus on your computer that hasn't been updated in a year. You're, you think you're more secure because yes. you have antivirus, but you haven't bothered to look that it stopped updating last year. 
I um just today dealt with a friend of mine at church who bought McAfee antivirus. I I'm sorry. As a former that, McAfee right. employee, I'm sorry. Yeah. That was for, poor choice number one. Um, but um, she went farther and bought it not from McAfee. She bought it from a reseller who actually included malware in the download. Um, and so she installed McAfee and pop-ups started popping all over her machine. Um, so there's there are people out there who will do all sorts of terrible things. Uh, one of them is the people who make McAfee, but in this case, the other one was the person who sold it to her. Wow. Um, and she's she's a non-sophisticated user. She just typed in antivirus and probably clicked the first ad that showed up, and uh, and there you go. So I helped her clean it up a little bit today, uh, and I told her, you know, you've already paid for McAfee. You don't have to uninstall it, but don't ever pay for it again. Right. I wonder if... um. I wonder if her machine was already infected with some type of uh, search hijacking. Likely, yeah. You know, that, that's what I was thinking too. That she'd already gotten some Yahoo toolbar thing that uh, that put that on there, and then it caused her to buy from the disreputable site. Right. But she said it started the moment she installed McAfee. Right, because then you have something on there telling you it's present, and right. before your ignorance truly was bliss. <laughs> Uh, and no good transition into this. Linux Foundation says that uh, Linux is growing at Windows expense in the enterprise. Yes. No surprise there. Yeah. Um. You know, just, yeah, there's not really a lot to say, but um, percentages of people who say, hey, we're going to be deploying new stuff. Linux has grown up 14 points from 65% up to 79 and uh windows has fallen from 45 down to 36%. So um it shows that Linux might not rule the corporate end user desktop but it is a major player on the back end. So um yeah, Microsoft is going to license himself out of business. That's that's the way things are going. Cuz they they sell you the software relatively inexpensively and then charge you a whole lot to connect to it. And businesses are saying, well, these Linux people, they don't do that. I can buy this weird guy with a split tongue and tattoos on his face, but um, he knows how to make this Linux thing work. So I'm, I'm going to go with it. Yeah, I, I, you know, you wonder. I mean, Microsoft, they, they're changing a lot. They had front runners disease for a long time, but I guess now that they're not the front runner overall. I mean, they're still the front runner in desktop computing, but. I don't know that you would say they're the front runner in overall computing, um, but they've definitely kind of picked up their pace and getting back into the game, lost a lot of stuff and becoming a more trim, nimble company. And uh, moving on the same trend, Linux.com uh, produced a, a series of reports, a partner from, uh, partly from Gartner and from others, saying that uh, there are lots of Linux sysadmin jobs out there. Yeah, um, and you can basically go to the, the link for this one will be in our show notes and you can just kind of see, uh, the percentage of job growth, how much they make and, you know, see that Linux is out there. Linux is a good choice and it's not going away. You know, it's not some flash in the pan that came out 20 years ago. Microsoft said, okay, we learned our lesson. We'll be better. No, Linux is here to stay. It is only growing. It is only improving. And again, 
if you look at the end user experience, you don't think anything of Linux. But if you want to make money in computing, then, you know, if you don't want to at least know a little bit about Linux, you are shutting yourself out from a growing portion of the back end market. Uh, you know, it scales very well. It's very good in the data center, um, VMs and things. So lots of websites run Linux on their back end. And as they become more consolidated, knowing how to fix them and keep them from getting broken in the first place will only be worth more and more money. And I would be the world's worst podcast host if I did not take this opportunity to tell you about our friends over at the linuxacademy.com whose sole purpose is to teach you how to become a network, a Linux system administrator so that you can go out and get some of those jobs in the growing market. Uh, they do this by the way of video tutorials, uh, combined with, um, PDF study guides, combined with practice exams, combined with quizzes, combined with an amazing, uh, virtual lab platform where you can get, uh, up to eight different machines running, four of them simultaneously live on the web with public host names. With, you know, uh, not only public host names, but you can assign your own tags to them like DB server or DNS server, and you can run experiments with them all in the safety of a virtual environment. So that if you blow something up, it's no big deal. You just re redo it and start over. The most effective way, in my experience, to learn about something is to break it and try to fix it. But, you know, when you're dealing with servers, no boss is going to be okay with you breaking the web server. So you build a virtual web server on linuxacademy.com's uh, platform and you break it and you try to fix it and nobody's going to get mad at you. Um, it's, it, it, it's so much more than just the videos. We, you know, when we started advertising for them almost two years ago now, uh, we said it was step-by-step -step videos. It was, it was YouTube style courses, but they've grown so much beyond that. It is now a, an online curriculum entity it's it's a learning management system it's a it's a university for all intents and purposes all designed to make you a better more well-rounded technician they the, the name is linux academy but they have other stuff there they have stuff for for openstack they have stuff for uh, amazon web services they have uh, all all these things out there that are sort of linux adjacent much like this show linux adjacent but it's all there um and one of their newest features that i'm super excited about is the learning plans where you select your daily availability and based on your availability it creates a study plan for you and then uh, it'll give you lessons and quizzes and labs they'll give you a due date for each and they'll send you an email reminder every day telling you what's due that day so that you can keep up with where you want to be um, it's an amazing system and it's inexpensive those two things rarely come together amazing and inexpensive $25 a month is their base price um, so for $25 you go in there and, and you just it's an all-you-can-eat buffet of learning um, but if you want to buy more, and you probably should, because a month isn't enough to learn any one thing unless you're a super genius. Um, if you want to buy a quarter, three months, that, that's $60, for so $20 a month. If you want to buy annually, it's $199 for 12 months, which breaks down to just under $17 a month. Where else are you going to get this quality of learning for $17 a month? Answer, nowhere. LinuxAcademy.com. Use the code EverydayLinux when you sign up. Let them know that we sent you there. Yeah, and the great thing about this that really separates this from a lot of education out there, you don't already have to know the material. There's lots of learning out there for if you already know the material and like you're going for a certification, you just need to know what format to kind of spit the answer out in. Uh, you know, you go and kind of polish up your what you learn. But here, 
if you know how to watch a YouTube video, that that's how much knowledge you need to start this. You say, I don't know how to remote into a server to even start administrating it. Well, that's one of the first lessons you do is how to download putty and how to connect ro- remotely to a server via the dreaded command line. So, um, you know, that's where you start out and then you go from there and you build on that lesson and you don't have to sit through three hours of a teacher talking to get the 10 minutes of how to remote into a machine. They teach you that that's that lesson. You move on to the next lesson. So you don't have to block hours out of your time to learn simple concepts. You got 10 or 15 minutes here. You got 30 minutes there. You don't understand it. You rewatch that and you're not holding up a bunch of other people because you didn't get that the first time through. It's, it's really an awesome way to go. You don't have to be afraid of learning with other people because, well, if I don't get it, I don't want everybody looking at me. I don't want to hold the class up. I don't want to be the squeaky wheel. Well, here you're learning by yourself. So give it a shot. Wait, you know, don't do it today. Wait until you have like, say, a week where you have a lot of free time and buy that one month and give it a try. And if you want to get in the computer field, this is this is I mean, there might there might be a lot of other places like this, but I don't think you'll find any place better. If you're a college student right now, uh, December, your your break is coming up. You're going to have a couple of weeks to maybe a month off. Excellent time to not let your learning muscles atrophy and instead of studying you know history and psychology study yourself a little linux and be uh be making the most of that 25 bucks um for a month you you just you can't beat it all right yeah Um, cook ramen one day instead of ordering pizza (laughs) and you've paid for a month and if you're if you're in college you know what ramen is that's all we need oh yeah if you love things that are awesome, you know what ramen is. Amen, um, brother. <laughs> I saw an ad just last week for the new uh, Nook book reader, and one of the things that they touted is it is now a full-on Android tablet. And I thought, huh, Android tablet for Nook, which is owned by Microsoft. But Seth has peeled away the curtains and let some light in. Microsoft and Barnes & Noble are ending their relationship. Yeah, we actually covered the story whenever it was that they kind of joined together. And um, Microsoft, they basically lost money on the stake. Uh, Nook or Barnes and Noble bought them out. And Barnes and Noble doesn't make Nooks anymore. They've like spun them off. And like the latest Nook is basically a Samsung device uh, running Android modified for Nook, kind of in the same way that Amazon runs android but it's customized but the customizations aren't that heavy so barnes and noble or you know it's one of those things has barnes and noble jettisoned microsoft so they can get uh back into the game and make a go of competing against amazon or did microsoft recognize the sinking ship and jumped while they still could get something for their investment you know time will tell um i don't like going to barnes and noble because one they don't honor their price on the web in store. Um, but at the same time, I don't like for one company to be the huge, almost a hundred percent of anything. So right. I hope they succeed. And if they would just honor the price on their website in their store, I, I that I would lose. I would like them, but I'll go in there to buy stuff, but if they don't have it, I'm not going to order it from the store. Um, I'm just going to go and order it at opie.com slash Amazon. So 
in a slightly related story. At church this morning, this young man, uh, fifth grader, sixth grader, I'm going to say, was looking for somebody to give him the Wi-Fi password to the church so that he could download a Bible app on his iPad. And uh, they they keep that password secure. I don't really know why, but they do. So I activated the hotspot on my phone, let him download the app. And it was taking a while because it does. Um, and while he was there, I said, you know, if you're just looking for a Bible, this is a church. We probably have lots of those books laying around, you know, the paper things that you could flip through. And he looked at me like I was from another planet. And he said, you know, I never even thought about that. Um, he just, it never occurred to him that, that there would be words printed on paper somewhere in a church. Um, he, he just, he couldn't do it. He'd forgotten his, his Bible and, uh, or his phone, which is where he usually does it, did it. All he had was his tablet and he didn't have an app on there. He was just, he was just dumbfounded at the suggestion that he could, uh, that he could use a book. Um, so that's, that's the generation that, that there was a woman there beside me. She just said, that's sad. I said, no, it's not sad. We're the sad ones. We're refusing to adapt. Uh, that's just his world. And in 20 years, he's going to be running things and there will be no more Barnes and Nobles because nobody will know what books are. They won't care. I know. That's why I'm buying them all up now. <laughs> <laughs> so when the zombie apocalypse comes and there's no more electricity and I don't have a solar charger, I can still read about fictional zombie apocalypses that happened in the past. And uh, speaking of people buying things up, schools are buying up Chromebooks. You know, when I was in education a couple of years ago, I saw schools rushing to buy expensive and limited iPads. And I shook my head and said, why would you do that when there are netbooks, when there are Chromebooks, when there are other devices that are a fraction of the cost with the same capabilities? No, maybe they're not as cool. They don't have the fancy touch interface and they don't have a, a glossy Apple logo on them, but they are literally two for one or even three for one for what an iPad is. Why wouldn't you do that? Finally, my, I am vindicated as schools are now dropping iPads in favor of Chromebooks. Yes, according to the latest data from IDC, Google has overtaken Apple in the United States schools. Um, the research firm claims that Google shipped a little over 700,000, uh, well, 715,000 Chromebooks and Apple shipped uh, 702,000 iPads. I'm like you. I think it's a great thing because it has a keyboard. You can do actual work on it. You could type something. You could learn something. You could learn how to do something and not just punch where the where the screen tells you punch here to learn this you've learned that punch here to learn this you've mastered that subject see you've completed all your teaks and great now you can blow on the games or something else or now you can study for that standardized test we're taking tomorrow or the one we're taking the day after that so sorry uh mark spent a lot more time in education than i have and he could go on for that but i think this is a great thing because you get a computer that can do so much more than a tablet. Yes, the iPad is awesome. It is light. It looks pretty and it looks shiny and your eyes gloss over and you say, wow. But, um, you know, if you want to get some work done, here's the thing. People don't just buy the iPad. They buy the case and the, the charging cart yeah. and the charging, but they only tout the cost of the iPad. See, these iPads aren't much more than this computer. Well, true. But when you add the case that costs an extra hundred bucks because it's an Apple case and the keyboard, that's another hundred bucks. Your $500 iPad ended up costing you a thousand dollars. Um, 
And then you can't manage the stuff. You manage it via Apple in a limited way they allow you to manage it versus, you know, Chromebooks that you can be in charge of. So who owns the data? Does the school own the data or does Apple own the data? I think the school should own the data. But again, tinfoil hat guy, get off my lawn. (laughs) So that's unfortunately, I just killed Chromebooks. Apple's going to win now. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I, I think really it's just budgets are winning. Um, yes. the grants, the grants only last so far, and then you have to come back to the thing that's actually affordable. And Google has, has, has held the line on that ever since the, the handset alliance formed and, and Android began, Google has said, we're going to sell stuff people can afford. Um, and, and they're winning it. Ta- you know, it's the tortoise and the hare. Um, <laughs> moving on to the next thing, Zuckerberg is a, just tired of people complaining about all the information that Apple, uh, that Facebook collects and ignoring all the information that everybody else collects. Yes. This is a quote from, uh, Zuckerberg kind of taking his shot at Tim Cook. A frustration I have is that a lot of people increasingly seem to equate an advertising business model with somehow being out of alignment with your customers. Um, this is Zuckerberg talking. I think it is the most ridiculous concept. What you think you're paying Apple that you're somehow in alignment with them. If you were in alignment with them, then they'd make their products a lot cheaper. And again, this isn't a bash Apple, although we know I love to do that. This is a, I don't care if you're using iTunes or you're using Facebook or you're using Google plus or, you know, some other piece, your apps together through something else. They're collecting data on you that they turn around and package to advertisers to sell stuff for you. You are the product with any of those services. Um, I mean, I love to single out Facebook because they're the market leader in this and I single out Google a lot. And yes, I love to bash Apple. That's part of my stick. But any of those companies that I made that I just named make money off of packaging your data and turning around and selling it to advertisers or presenting a package for advertisers to purchase. They are making money off of you. You might be paying for their services, but they are in turn using you as a service as well. You know, which everybody does, right? HBO and, and uh, you know, they, they don't run advertisements, but you bet they package stuff and, and sell uh, you know, the midnight slot by 18 to 21 year olds, they're selling that for, you know, the Game of Thrones people, uh, you know, whatever it is. The, it, it's all, the world has run on data aggregation since we began to digitally aggregate data. Um, and it's, it's unfair to single out one company and to give others a pass. I agree with that. Um, yes, Facebook is somewhat onerous, but at least they're a little more honest about it. Yeah. They say we we here's the information we're collecting from you. Uh, Apple just says, "Would you like us to monitor quality of service?" Which means, can we collect all kinds of information? Yeah. So you know, and again, that was the main reason. There's no revelation in this story. It's just a reminder that you know, if you if you ditch Facebook and try to revive MySpace. MySpace is collecting data on you and you're actually, you're because you're so lonely on MySpace, you're a lot more identifiably individually. So, and the, the idealistic people who've gone out like the diaspora people said, we're not going to collect anything. Where are they? they? They can't get anybody. They can't make any money because right now we live in an economy that sells information. That's the yep. only commodity that's important right now. Yep. 
And that's a statement of fact, whether we agree, whether we like it or not, that's the way it is. You know, you know what else is the way it is? SSDs may outlive us all. You know, I, I myself have, uh, have, have said that SSDs have a, a, uh, aware factor that is as of yet unknown because they're still relatively new. We did a show about it. I talked about the balloon metaphor. Every time you blow it up, you weaken it and someday the cell is going to pop. Well, we finally got some, some quantifiable tests, uh, that say they're going to last a while. Yes, they ran a, they took like, um, I think it was five, um, or six different SSD drives and they continuously read and wrote 10 gigs of both small and large files. Um, four of the drives did not make it to a petabyte mark, although that is still way far past the limit that they say, but two of the drives are still going having written two petabytes worth of data and are still going. Um, and a typical user will write a couple of terabytes of data a year on their SSD. So again, this isn't like a super um, definitive study. They, they, you know, maybe they got these two, maybe they're, maybe the two that are still going are the worst model overall, but they happen to find the best two drives ever made right. like that. But, you know, being able to write, read and write petabytes worth of data, your computer will probably crumble back into the base silicon um, <laughs> long before, you know, you do petabytes if you use your computer averagely. So, yeah. So, I, uh, the just a little primer uh, reminder on that. It, it is the write process that is destructive to SSDs. Read processes are non-destructive. In a spinning disk, existing is destructive. If you right. spin it, you destroy it. If you don't spin it, it can seize up. This is, uh, spinning disks have a mean time before failure of three to five years of use. Um, that's three to five years of them being powered on, regardless of how much reading or writing you do, because largely there's no difference in wear and tear for reading and writing. SSDs, d- d- not discounting environmental heat, cold, humidity, that sort of stuff, they're only destroyed, they're only damaged, they're only worn when writing. So they wrote hundreds of years worth of data before these things failed. That's positive. Yeah. And two of them were still going. Two of them hadn't failed yet as of this article. And and again, you know, if you're a super user and and you do nothing but edit, um, you know, web pages and videos for fun and as you have an automated process to do that continually, then hey, maybe you do a little more than two terabytes of data a year. Okay. Fine. Yours will only last 500 years. So your great grandchild will uh, tear it up. But yeah. So, you know, maybe SSDs have reached the point to where it, you know, because it used to when SSDs came out, Hey, this is probably going to fail before your computer and you're probably going to have to replace it. So if you're not doing, you know, it, you would only do it for mission critical things where you need that extra push, but maybe we've gotten to the point to where, uh, your computer is probably going to wear out before your hard drive does, whether it is spinning SSD or some type of hybrid. That's a good place to be. Yeah. Yeah. I've, uh, I have, 
since just taking the plunge on SSDs entirely, they are the they are at the point now where the cost is not significantly more. You know, for a while there, they were two and three and four times more than equal quantities. Right now, they're um, if you get up into the terabyte range, the multi terabyte range, they can still be fairly expensive. But for a, a reasonable size hard drive, uh, you know, uh, 500, 750 gigs, uh, which is you know perfectly reasonable for an average laptop. They're only slightly more expensive than their spinning disc counterparts. So I just, that's what I do now. I, I don't even think about spinning discs anymore. Hey, dude, they had some Black Friday or I don't, I don't know what you call it anymore. Black Thanksgiving time period. <laughs> Black um, November. Yeah. Uh, that they were super cheap. I mean, you were like good size hard drives for, I mean, granted more, more than the spinning, but. Close enough to where the benefits, I think, are more than justified yeah. by the increase in price. So, yeah, they're running like 30% more as opposed to 400% more. Right. Um, and the, just the speed boost alone is worth paying that extra 30%. Yeah. I, you know, tightwad here, or I'm sorry, Mark's the tightwad. I'm the cheapskate. <laughs> cheapskate here saying price is no longer a consideration to not buy an SSD. Yeah. You know, and like with anything, buy the biggest you can afford. Right. right. Let your let your wallet drive your decision. Buy the biggest thing you can afford because you're you're going to use more than you think you will. But um, you know, I think a terabyte is still more than most people need. Um, you know, five hundred to seven fifty for average use, even considering you know uh, heavy media use, is fine. Uh, and those those models now are a couple hundred bucks. You know, just do it. Uh, less yep. than that. I mean, like. Yeah, a couple hundred would be expensive now that I think about it. Yeah, there was like, it was like $120 for, it was over a 500 gig SSD. It was a Black Friday thing. I was like, wow, that's like, that's cheap. I didn't need one and I almost bought it. <laughs> so <laughs> I remember in uh, 1991, 92, somewhere around there. I went to, I got a, a brand spanking new Best Buy credit card and, and being an American, I can't have a credit card with a, with a balance on it, uh, or with a, with an unused balance on it. Right. I went to Best Buy and maxed out my $500 line of credit with Best Buy to buy two, two meg sticks of RAM. Four megs of RAM was $500. So, uh, 86 or so dollars per meg of RAM. And now, we complain that machines can only hold 10 gigabits, uh, gigabytes of RAM. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's a crazy world. Yeah. I remember when, when memory was like a hundred dollars a meg and you were like, wow. And then when it fell to like a hundred dollars a gig, you were like, Oh my gosh, this is how long is it going to stay this cheap before the prices go back up? And yeah. now, you know, $10 a gig is probably expensive. A dollar a gig, I think is just about the price it seems yeah it's crazy uh and it's just gonna get it's just gonna get cheaper we get better at that uh which is why i you know i've been looking at maybe buying a smartwatch uh for for christmas my wife asked me what i wanted and i told her a smartwatch um and then she said well which one I was like, that's that's the eternal question um and so i've been going back for i still haven't decided whether or not i'm going to tell her i want a smartwatch for christmas or not i've got you know for 15 days uh i need to need to get on that uh but i, I just the, the the thing is if i drop $300 on a smartwatch now and next year a $300 smartwatch is 
twice as good as what I have now. And next year, the $300 swap smartwatch is actually going to be the one I wanted. The one three years from now is the one I want right now. Whereas I'm wearing a, a Timex Ironman that's like 40 bucks, and I've had it for a decade. So, you know, this is this is hard to ch- to to get the cheapskate uh, to drop that kind of money on something that I know isn't going to last. Yeah, I remember when I bought my tablet, I bought it Black Friday last year, and I was like, but it's going to be cheaper later. And now I can buy the same tablet I bought then for like $100 less. But I made this, and I was like, you know, things are always going to get cheaper and better. Yeah. But that's a good price. I'm going to jump in here and be happy with it. And so I... I got to tell you, my boss, and I hope he doesn't listen to the show, but <laughs> his phone was ringing. And so he looked at his smartwatch and goes, I don't know this person. I better take this. And I just like, go away. I want that. I want to be that guy. Oh, I wanted to slap that guy because, you know, I mean, and you know, he wasn't showing off. He was just like, yeah, he was just using I don't it. Know. I was like, go away. Just leave me, get out of my corner, unused corner of the office and let me and, be. And if it's, if it's one of the higher end, you can actually talk to the watch, a la Dick Tracy. I want that. That's actually the one feature that I, I'm super excited about is incoming caller ID and being able to talk to my watch with my phone in my pocket. Why am I too much of a douche to pull my phone out of my pocket? Apparently I am because I just think that's the coolest thing ever. I think I was born like 50 years too late. <laughs> Because I just like, I mean, you know, I'm sure, but you know, I used to want a cell phone back when they were a status symbol and you were, you know, you were this rich geek. If you have one, I was like, I want one of those. I thought that, but to me, I haven't got to the point to where I think a smartwatch is worth having. So maybe it's just the, maybe it's my cheap defenses firing up, but. To me, they haven't got, you know, I got to the point where I think a tablet is cool and I, I like having a smartphone, even though I don't use it as much. Um, I don't mind those, but just the smartwatch is, uh, I, I'm not sold yet. Where I think we're going to go with this is that the, the watch becomes the primary device and the phone is the screen expansion instead of the other way around. Right now, the watch is useless without a phone. I think in five years, yeah, five years. The watch will be the device. It'll have all the processing power and capabilities of the phone, and the phone will just be the expanded screen. Like you, like you can Chromecast something now, flip it to a larger screen for for viewing there, and the and the phone is the control. I think that's where watches are going to be in a few years. And so I I, I kind of want to wait till we get there, but at the same time, it's you know I want to be Dick Tracy and I want to talk to my wrist. Maybe, I, like I say, I, I'm not there yet. Maybe I will see, you know, what's it, it's going to take some hot chick that I'm attracted to doing that. And I'll go, oh, my gosh, that's the coolest thing ever. But because it was my <laughs> boss, I just think that's geeky and I don't want anything to do with it. So Generally, I have a real wait and see attitude te- toward technology. Um, I wouldn't upgrade my 386 or my 486 machine until I could do a Pentium gig. So Pentiums were out for a long time, but I told myself I'm not going to buy until I can do a gigahertz machine i waited a long time uh, i didn't buy a dvd player until i bought an hd tv because i thought it was silly to plug a v a vhs into uh, a big screen tv or to have a big screen tv with a vhs plug i felt that those two things went together so well while everybody else was on the dvd bandwagon i was still rocking my forehead vcr um until i could afford the display 
And right. I, I went out and spent $3,000. I saved for a year. I'm not kidding. A year on this, uh, t- for this television. And I, I spent $3,000 on a 32 inch LCD display. The other day I was in, in Walmart and they have 55 inches for $480. And when I bought mine, it was in the back up in a cage locked up. Right. And, you know, I had to do a, a fingerprint ID and a retina scan to get one. These things are just out in the aisle. You grab one, throw it in your cart as you go. Right. So I, I tend to, to wait. I'm not an early adopter of technology. Um, because. They get so much better and so much cheaper. And, and you know, I don't regret having bought that LCD TV. I'm still using it many years later. It was a solid purchase. But had I waited, you know, just a year longer, and I keep, I kick, I kick myself about those sort of things. Right. Uh, early adopters pay the price, right? Um, I had a, an old boss who used to say, never be the first the new to try or the last to lay the old aside. And that was one of his favorite things. And I'd come to him, you know, I'm the tech guy. He's this 70 year old superintendent. And every time I'd say, I want, this is new. I want to do this. He would quote that line at me. Never be the first of the new to try or the last to lay the old aside. The trick is to hit that middle ground. And I don't think, I think if I buy a smartwatch right now, I'm going to be the first of the new to try. So that's what's holding me back. But also, I want to be Nick Tracy. I want it. Yeah. Well, you know, now, and I don't, yeah, I'm just, I'm not there. I don't, I remember thinking it would be cool the Dick Tracy watch talking to your smartphone or you know your smart shoe you know let's throw some get smart out there but <laughs> the shoe phone <laughs> but I I just having seen it all I could think was dear God no um so that was you know like I say I'm I'm not there yet there'll be some change uh, in my mindset that will get me there but I'm not there yet I I've, a friend of mine at work has a Pebble. Uh, the, the pebble steel and I, they're, they're distinctive in the look. The, the watch face isn't, uh, you know, he had just a fairly generic watch face, but they have that weird sort of two knuckle design that makes them obvious. And I asked him, I said, so what do you, what do you think of the pebble? Do you like it? What do you use it for? And he said, a watch. He said, it's pretty much, I tell time with it every now and then. Uh, one of the neat things about the Pebble was when like a text or an email notification comes on, it pops up on your wrist and you just shake it to make it go away. So in a meeting, he can read a text message, shake his wrist, and it's it's not distractive in any way. But for the most part, it's an expensive watch. It, it, well, really, they're not expensive. Like two, $300 for a good quality watch is not expensive at all. No. People pay thousands of dollars for nice watches, but I don't. I pay $40 for a Timex Ironman that I keep for a decade. So this is a big jump for me. It's a big mental jump. Right. All right. That we we went so long on that discussion. I'm just going to we're just going to end it there. We had a whole other discussion planned, but uh, I think we we gave you your money's worth for the show. I think this was uh uh for the nothing you pay. I think uh I think we gave you plenty of content. Um this was some good good discussion, some interesting news. But Seth, first I need to know. I need to know what happened this week in history. Okay, December the 5th, 1958, subscriber trunk dialing, so that is STD in the computer lingo, is inaugurated in the United Kingdom by no less than Queen Elizabeth II when she speaks to the Lord Provost in a call from Bristol to Edinburgh. December 5th, 1958, subscriber trunk dialing makes it to the UK. And so what? what's special about st- subscriber trunk dialing is there's no switchboard. You're direct dialing from one person to another. That was a big deal. 
Yeah. And you know, and we're not just all about America here. I try to do worldwide when I find, uh, you know, <laughs> when my Wikipedia thing shows a good, a good fact, I, I bring it down and share it with the world. And, uh, I'm pretty sure Seth is right now Googling subscribers trunk, trunk dogging to see if I, I got it right. No, I'm pretty sure I'm that's taking, what it is. I'm taking your word for it. I was, I was, you started talking about it and I was like, Oh crap. He's going to ask me what that is. So, um, I, I honestly don't know what it is. I just, um, uh, I, I took, uh, Wikipedia at their word and passed it along to the masses. Yeah, so here it is. Subscriber trunk dialing is a term for telephone systems allowing subscribers to dial trunk calls without the operator assistance. I got it right. So uh, you used to be able to dial locally within like your city or your, your little community uh, phone to phone, but to go from trunk to trunk from like a long distance call. Think that's a way to think of it. A trunk to trunk call is a long distance call uh, needed an operator and subscriber trunk dialing gave you that power. And so 1958, at least in the UK. Yeah. How do I know this stuff? I just, I just do. <laughs> I, I, I just, I'm that guy. I can't let something go unknown. If I don't know it, I have to go look it up and then know it. So Seth, what have you got for me this week that is going to puzzle me until I, I know what it is? Okay. Um, trees are people too. Um, you know, we shouldn't be cutting down trees or anything because apparently they make music. Um, there's this guy, he took the, you know, a tree, if you cut a cross section of it, the, the tree has like rings for years. Uh, well, this guy was like, what happens if I play that like one would a record player? And so, um, the link will be in the show notes, trialbeck.com slash years. And you can click on this and kind of hear. And they've made full-length recordings that you can actually um, buy if you so um, if you so choose. But you can just go from here. From looking at looking at the picture, it looks like an optical. It's not a needle on a tree. It's it's reading the grooves, sort similar to a DVD would. Uh, I'm interested to hear this when the show's over. Yeah, um, they kind of uh, they they go in i read i don't remember where i read but what they did exactly oh uh modified turntable computer vvvv whatever that is camera acrylic glass veneer um is kind of uh it's a record player that plays slices of wood and it happened in 2011 so it's been around for a while and i've actually had this one in the well for a while to share cool um so trees are not people but uh they maybe they make music or maybe they don't. Um, humans are so good at seeing patterns, we see patterns where they don't exist. And I think this is probably what that is. But hey, what do you think? You tell us by going to elementopi.com and clicking on the contact us button at the top of the page and uh, let us know what you think. Or if you uh, are more of an email type guy, send an email to edl at elementopi.com. Uh, or if you want uh, to uh, speak to us, you can dial 559-IMOP anywhere in North America or use the call us widget at the top of the page and Google Voice will call you. You can leave us a voicemail. And um, I had one just today that, that, or that I found today. It came in earlier in the week and then I forgot to put it in the show notes. So... Um, I believe it was John from Alaska. We'll get to you next week because I forgot. Sorry. Um, but uh, I, I do like hearing from our listeners, so I, I appreciate it when you do that. Uh, let us know what you think. Elementop.com. We uh, we love to hear from you. Uh, and that's I think that's it. Seth, any final thoughts before we say goodnight? 
No, just uh, thanks everybody for listening. Really appreciate you out there. Um, thank you. And Seth, thank you for being the uh, faithful host while Chris is out traveling. I, I, I mentioned he wasn't here. I didn't say why. He's traveling for work, uh, going a couple of states away, and uh, he needed to do that traveling today, so he's not with us. We're, uh, we missed you, Chris, and uh, we'll see you all uh, later. And that ends this episode of Everyday Linux. See you in two weeks. Bye.